This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. But we want to just um, talk a few minutes from Nehemiah chapter 8, still digging through plowing through the book of Nehemiah and considering everything that happens there and seeing what all we can learn from it. And I guess uh, we should say up front that there's nothing new under the sun. It's like if you, I, I, I get humored sometimes by preachers and teachers who consistently try to wow people with new things. And coming up with what they call nuggets or hitting that quote home run feels good to dig up a nugget I guess feels good to hit a home run but when it comes to the truth that we encounter in God's word there's really nothing new but that doesn't make it boring that doesn't make it irrelevant or unimportant Uh, it's always challenging it's always invigorating it's always super important but it's not new because God's ways have always been what God's ways are and he doesn't change, and his thinking doesn't change, and his ways don't change. Sometimes he'll change his mind, yes, about things. That's almost always based off of the level of obedience of his people. He might change his mind, but he doesn't change his heart. He doesn't change his ways. He doesn't change his mandates or his plan for us. That's always the same. And we find that again in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. And to set the stage for it, um, leading up to this chapter, as we know, Nehemiah was in Persia working in the palace for King Artaxerxes and was the cupbearer for the king, was brought news by his brother and some other people about the condition of things back home in Jerusalem, that the city had been torn down, the walls had been torn down, the gates had been burned, everything was in shambles, people were in captivity, and it was not good. And he immediately was overcome with a burden for his homeland and for his people, and the king saw that something was wrong, asked him, what's going on with you? He tells him, he's, and, uh, and so then the king says, well, how can I help? And he says, well, I'd like to go back home and, and lead the project of rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the gates, and reestablish them reestablishing the culture of my people and the king not only agreed to that but he offered to fund the project which is pretty cool so he made the trip took him longer to make the trip than it did to actually do the work because he completed the work in 52 days so that's less than two months time it took him to actually complete the rebuilding of the walls and the rebuilding of the gates and that was because of a commitment it was because of teamwork it was because they worked and were prepared to fight and defend at the same time so all those great great lessons in there for us and that all brings us up to chapter eight and by now they are seven months into it so they've been finished with the work for a little bit and they're now living there and they are carrying on life as a people group and it starts by saying by the time the seventh month arrived the people of israel were settled in their towns then all the people gathered as one person i like that 
in the town square in front of the water gate and asked the scholar Ezra to bring the book of the revelation of Moses that God had commanded for Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the revelation to the congregation, which was made up of both men and women, everyone capable of understanding. Pause right there for a second. Um, that phrase, everyone capable of understanding, is important in my way of thinking. And so you have people at all different levels who show up at church, who show up at Bible studies, and who are involved in discipleship at some level. But I think that's the reason why it's important to address people uh, in terms of their level of understanding. So we start... We started here pretty shallow a long time ago, and then we started digging deeper and diving deeper because I think most of you in the room have been walking the journey for quite a long time, and you can deal with more of the meat now and not just the milk. And so that's why we send kids out to kids' church because of level of understanding, right? Some folks believe that you should just keep the kids in big church so that they can be exposed to that. And I think there are parts of that that are beneficial, you know, exposure to the worship, and we always leave them in here during the worship time. Then we dismiss them for the lesson time because I think it's good for them to see that worship and to feel it and to experience it and to get familiar with it. But then when it's time for the Word, probably not the best idea to leave them in uh, the sanctuary with the grown people because most of the time the preacher, teacher, is going to deal with that word on a level that's going to be above the kids' heads, right? That's pretty basic stuff. That's why we operate like that. And I don't know who was left out of this, but somebody was left out, probably the kids and probably people who uh, maybe didn't have the mental capacity to comprehend and understand the teaching. But everyone who was capable of understanding was there, <clears throat> It was the first day of the seventh month. He read it facing the town square at the water gate from early dawn until noon in the hearing of the men and women, all who could understand it. And all the people listened. They were all ears to the book of the Revelation. The scholar Ezra stood on a wooden platform constructed for the occasion. He was flanked on the right by these people. I'm not going to name them all. And he was flanked on the left by these people. And Ezra opened the book, and every eye was on him. He was standing on the raised platform. And as he opened the book, everyone stood. Then Ezra praised God, the great God, and all the people responded, Oh, yes, yes, with hands raised high. And then they fell to their knees in worship of God, their faces to the ground. And then these people... All of them, all the Levites, explained the revelation while people stood listening respectfully. They translated the book of the revelation to God so that people could understand it and then explained the reading. What, what does that look like in practical everyday terms for you and me? That you have, let me form it in another question. So you come together on Sundays and you listen to me. Is that it for you? Is that all that you do? Is that all there is to it for you? Is that what discipleship amounts to for you? Um, 
I hope not because, frankly, that's just not enough. You know, and uh, I, I, you know, I'm not enough. I can't give you enough. I can't explain it enough. I can't break it down for you at the level that you need it broken down. And so we don't do small groups here because we are a small group here, so we're doing small group right now, right? No need to break it down further. But you should be breaking it down inside your own family group. You should be breaking it down inside like when the men get together or the ladies get together. That's the <coughs> excuse me, were weeping as they heard the words of the revelation. He continued, go home and prepare a feast, holiday food and drink, and share it with those who don't have anything. This day is holy to God. Don't feel bad. The joy of God is your strength. And the Levites calmed the people. Quiet now. This is a holy day. Don't be upset. So the people went off to feast, eating and drinking and including the poor in a great celebration. Now they got it. Remember that. That's, that's what we're going to hook on to today. Now they got it. They understood the reading that had been given to them. On the second day of the month, the family heads of all the peoples, the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scholar to get a deeper understanding of the words of the Revelation. They found written in the Revelation that God commanded through Moses that the people of Israel are to live in booths during the festival of the seventh month. So they published this decree and had it posted in all their cities and in Jerusalem. Go into the, all the hills and collect olive branches, pine branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and any other leafy branches to make booths as it is written. All this sounds kind of weird, right? They got houses, but they're building booths. Well, it's important. Just hang on. So the people went out, brought in branches, and made themselves booths on their roofs, courtyards. The courtyards of the temple of God, the Watergate Plaza, and the Ephraim Gate Plaza, the entire congregation that had come back from exile, made booths and lived in them. The people of Israel hadn't done this from the time of Joshua, son of Nun, until that very day, a terrific day, great joy. And as we read from the book of the Revelation of God each day from the first to the last day, they celebrated the feast for seven days. On the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly in accordance with the decree. So they set aside a time of celebration for all that's been accomplished. This became known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. <clears throat> and it's still celebrated now in Jewish culture. Let's move back to the beginning, and I want us to, as we often do, pull out the lessons that are here, remembering there's nothing new under the sun. So Nathan, if you will, put back up, starting from verse 1, and lesson number 1, and this is huge for some of us, because some of us depend on the big moments. Some of us depend on that great church service where the Spirit of God is really working and doing stuff. Some of us depend on that obvious answered prayer. And we've been praying intensely for it, and we've been praying a long time for it. And God answers the prayer, and it's glorious. And we depend on that, and that becomes a lifeline for us. Some of us depend on 
a revelation that might come to us in the Word or in prayer or in whatever form it comes, and we hook on to that, and that becomes our lifeline almost exclusively. And all those things are good, and all those things are important, and all those things can bring tremendous benefit, but i got to tell you this morning, and we learned this first here in this chapter, that after the big splash, there's more that's required. And the more that's required is called long obedience in the same direction. How long will it take you in the Bible studying the history of God's people to find out that they had a big problem continuing in long obedience after the big splash? Every time you turn around. Right? They get delivered from bondage in Egypt. 400 years of slaving under somebody else's authority. 400 years of living without their freedoms. Miraculously delivered through a series of supernatural events that cannot be explained any other way except that this has to be the all-powerful God. Delivered from being faced with a sea of water on one side and Pharaoh's army on the other. Miraculously witnessing the waters roll back. Walking through on dry ground. Watching those same waters crash down on top of Pharaoh's army. Destroying them all. And before they can get their clothes dried out on the other side of the water, if they got any on them, guess what they're doing? Grumbling, complaining, because they are not committed to long obedience in the same direction. What's the direction? Where are we going? Where does the promise lie? Over there in Canaan, right? Milk and honey, peace and prosperity. It's the promised land. That's where we're all going. That promise is good for you and me right now. We have a promise of full glory. We have a promise of full satisfaction, full perfect health, living in the presence of God. But what is required is long obedience toward it, commitment to steps in the process, not commitment to the end result. You see, the people wanted the promised land, they just didn't want to get up every day and pay the price to get there. They enjoyed the big splashes. They literally wanted God to pick them up, let them live inside that pillar of, of fire and cloud, the glory, transport them supernaturally over top of all their problems and all their enemies and set them down in the middle of the promise. And it just doesn't work like that. It didn't work like that for them and it's not going to work like that for us. So with all your glory moments, all the big splashes that you get to enjoy, get up the next morning and commit yourself one more time to long obedience in the same direction. One step at a time, commitment to His Word, commitment to prayer, commitment to worship, commitment to service, 
Commitment to all the ridiculous things that Jesus said we ought to be doing if we plan to, quote, follow him. After the big splash, it's long obedience. In the story of Nehemiah, they have gotten there. They have completed the wall. They have completed the gates. They have found their security. God has provided one more time. God has been faithful to his word and his promises one more time. It's a big splash. It's a reason for celebration. But what comes next? It has to be long obedience because God is not finished. This is just one step, one event, one experience. Number two, let's go back to the scripture. It's always about the word and the word, and I had word capitalized because it should be, but Nathan didn't capitalize it, so you're fired. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to pay you anymore. Oh, we don't pay you now. So, All right, let's go back to the... So Ezra the priest brought the revelation to the congregation. Okay? It's always about the Word. It has always been about the Word. Now the Word is two things, right? Two things that are really the same thing. The Word is what God gives us as instruction. It might be what you find in the Bible. It might be what He gives you personally and individually, in your own time of communion with him. That's never going to contradict what he's already said, by the way, but he might give you something personal and individual, and that is a, quote, word for you, right? There's this manipulation and perversion of prophetic word giving out there in the world today, and I advise you to stay away from it. I advise you to dig deep on your own, to listen to, tr to teaching and preaching that you know you can trust, and dig on your own and let God give you the word instead of depending on somebody else to give you a word that he has for you. Now, there are times when somebody might come to you and say, the Lord impressed this on me for you, and they give it to you, and you know it's right, and it confirms something that's already in your spirit, and that's good. There is a real, genuine, legitimate word operation that we should embrace. But the manipulation, the perversion, like when uh, my brother's wife, Rhonda, was um, pregnant with their fourth child, <coughs> they had three daughters, a lady come up, came up to Rhonda in church and said, God gave me a word for you. That, that's a pretty a serious thing to say, y'all. If you're going to say that, you uh, <laughs> You better be real sure that what you're saying is right and real and legitimate and is out of the heart of God because it's a dangerous thing to be giving away the Word of God that is not a Word of God. And she says, you've got three daughters. Now God is going to give you a man-child. Okay? It's going to be a strong, healthy baby boy. It's going to follow in his father's footsteps. It's going to look like his father. It's going to speak like his father. It's going to carry on the Word of his father. Because this child, this man-child is so important, you will travail for many hours in labor to give birth to this child. It will be, it will be a, a long and agonizing labor. This is the Word of God for you. And when Rhonda went into labor, 
She called Bruce and said, you better get here. His baby's coming. And 25 minutes after he got her to the hospital, the baby was here. And the baby's name is Kaylin because it was a girl child. And about a year later, the lady came up to Rhonda and said, hey, you know that prophecy I gave you, that word from God about the man-child? Do you think I missed that? Well, that's kind of a silly question, isn't it? Be careful what kind of words you're giving and, and, and blaming God or giving God the credit for. And be careful what you receive. Because if you're living life in the Spirit, what God gives you through somebody else is going to set well in your spirit. It's going to be confirmed in your spirit. <clears throat> so, it's always about the Word, the real, legitimate Word. And the other form that the Word takes is the person of Jesus Himself. Right? John chapter 1 starts out how? In the beginning was the Word. Capital W, Nathan. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. And everything that was made was made through Him, the Word. You ever wonder where Jesus was in the process of creation? Well, He was right there. All three persons in the Trinity were right there in the beginning. God created. God, the three-person Godhead, created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And what happened? And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And God opened His mouth and spoke. And when God speaks, what happens? His Word goes out from him and accomplishes what's in his heart to do. That word is the person of his only son, present in creation, creating, doing, working, presenting the heart of God to the world. So what's the point to us? The point is, it's always about the Word. If you are not living in relationship with the Word, the person of Jesus Christ, you're always going to be lacking. You're always going to be living in a level of emptiness. You're never going to be growing in your understanding of the revelation of the heart of God. Because that's His role, is to show you what the revelation of the heart of God looks like, feels like, sounds like. He is the Word, and nobody comes to the Father except through the Word. So, it's always about the Word, and the Word never changes. So, Ezra gets up on the tail end of the big splash, the big accomplishment, the big victory. And what's the most important thing that can be done in the moment? Let's give the people the Word. Number three, true worship is born out of relationship with the Word. Y'all see what Nathan did there? He's quick back there. 
True worship. All right, now look. What do we do in church usually? We didn't do it this morning because we got no worship leaders. We usually worship first, and then we have the word, right? <coughs> that's okay. It's really just because that's a pattern that churches established a long time ago. And practically any church you go to, that's what they're going to do. They're going to do their music and their singing, their worship time first, and then they're going to have the Word. And we do it here, so I obviously have no problem with it. But here, here's the key when it comes to worshiping the Word for us as individuals. And I've said this before, nothing new under the sun. When you come in these doors on Sunday mornings, right, you should have been dealing with the Word all week long. You should have been embedded in that word every day. You should have been tossing that thing around like a dog with a bone every day. I mean, evaluate yourself. What percentage of time have you spent listening to this or paying attention to that in comparison with the percentage of time you spend dealing with the word, meditating on those words, the psalmist in Psalm 1 says, day and night. And when you walk through these doors on Sunday mornings, if you have established in your own heart and mind a foundation of the Word, what that's going to do to your worship is beyond my ability to describe. And sometimes our worship is dead because throughout the previous few days leading up to the worship time, our life in the Word was dead. If you spend that time, that real time, right time, quality and quantity time with the Word, you're going to get excited about that Word. You saw what happens in the chapter next, right? We'll get to it. Is that after they deal with the Word, they get excited. They get emotional. They get fired up. They get energetic. The scholar Ezra stood on the platform and he, he taught them. He, he shared again the Word, the Word that God had given to Moses. And then true worship sprung up out of it. True worship is born out of relationship with the Word. Number four, we should listen to our teachers. Uh, and I, I'm not going to spend much time there because I think y'all do a pretty good job of that. Um, almost never do I stand up here and feel like that people are 100% disengaged once in a while, I know that there are certain individuals of you who are disengaged. That's fine. Sometimes it's because I look back and you look like this. That's a pretty clear sign that you're disengaged. You know, when the babies are in here and you see people, their eyes are cocked over here, you know they're disengaged because of that. Sometimes people are just daydreaming, whatever. It's fine. 
But I rarely feel like, by and large, that people are disengaged. I walk by the Sunday school time, and people are really engaged with that, you know. So, and, and in our smaller groups, the men's group, ladies' group, youth group, I think people are pretty, pretty engaged with their teachers. We don't have to spend a whole lot of time there. It's really more about what you do with it after you leave the teaching time. But it starts with listening to sound instruction, digging into the Word on our own, listening to sound instruction. Let's look at number five. Huge, extremely important, our work our worship and our service must always include outreach to the poor. Did we find that in chapter 8 of the book of Nehemiah way back in the Old Testament? Was there, was there an emphasis in, in taking care of the poor in the processes of whatever we're doing? Let's go back to the scripture and remind ourselves. It'll be somewhere in the middle there. I forget which verse, but... Let's see... So here is where he's saying the Levites calm the people quiet now. This is a holy day. Don't be upset. And the people went off to feast, eating and drinking and including the poor in a great celebration. And they were given that instruction before this that when you go, when you leave here, when you go to do your celebration, make sure you don't leave people out because they don't have the, they don't have the means to really help themselves. They don't have the means to contribute. But make sure that the poor among you are included, that they are taken care of. And on the second day of the month, the family heads of all the people, the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scholar to get a deeper understanding of the words. And when we draw people in, people from every category... We need to make sure that everybody's on level ground. Everybody feels important. Everybody feels equal because the reality is we are all equal. It doesn't matter if someone's bank account is bigger than someone else's bank account. It doesn't matter if someone is driving a, a new car and someone is breaking down every time they get out on the road. That does not matter in the sight of God, so why should it matter to us? The only thing in terms of that that matters to us is, is that the ones that have more have more of a responsibility to share with the ones who have less. That's all it means. And so we come together. There's a sense of family, a sense of togetherness, and it always includes an outreach to the poor. And Ezra's given the people instructions here, and the Levites are giving people instructions. And that's our... Um, Lesson number six is the kingdom really has very little to do with our emotions. Again, most of you in the room, you're in a good spot with this. Your emotions are not dictating your spirituality. Unfortunately, there are a few of us that still have a heavy emphasis and a heavy dependency on our emotions when it comes to our relationship with God, and how we deal with other people in the kingdom lifestyle. Okay, so when you have someone that comes to you and they have a problem and they need you to be their friend in the situation, whether that involves conversation, prayer, they've got mental health issues going on, they're dealing with fear, they're dealing with anxiety, they're dealing with some depression. They're battling their addiction. Hey, look, 
It's good for you to wrap your arms around them and cry with them. It's good for you to share in that pain, bear one another's burdens, right? But, but hey, listen, at some point you've got to level it out, right? At some point you've got to deal with the practical. At some point there has to be real prayer that is seek, seeking out God's kingdom and His will and His daily bread and not just a sharing together of the deep emotions of the moment. You know, we've got, to, we've got to mature and we've got to exercise that maturity when it comes to helping people walk through dark valleys. And sometimes, listen, sometimes this process involves getting a little bit straight with people. The way I like to put it is, listen, I'll climb in the ditch with you all day long. But I ain't staying in the ditch with you. I'm not going to stay in the ditch with you. If you choose the ditch ongoing, you're going to be in that ditch by yourself if you're waiting on me. Because when I get down in the ditch with you, I'm there, yes, to dry your tears, yes, to hug your neck, yes, to wipe the blood and the snot off of you. But at some point, I'm going to grab you by the arm and say, all right, now it's time for us to climb up out of this ditch because there's some better stuff down the road. But some people find their identity in the ditch. Right? It's, it's a place that they have gotten sort of weirdly comfortable with because it gets them attention. And when people come and get in the ditch with them and just lay there and wallow and cry with them, it makes them feel better. But it only makes them feel better temporarily because they're still in the ditch. Those of you who are more mature, who are further along in this journey, hey, keep climbing in the ditch. But you've got to challenge people at the same time. You've got to get straight with people at the same time. This past week I had a conversation with somebody who wanted to keep dealing with all the mess and all the stuff and... You know, stuff that gets you hair on your neck standing up. You get aggravated. And you, get, you get intense and you get argumentative. And finally, I just said, hey, look, you know, okay. So we dealt with all that, and now we've got to move on because we've got to get to some better stuff, and they don't want to do that. And i got to tell you now, and, you know, some people don't like this kind of talk. Sorry. Uh, you don't have to agree with it. You can do things your own way. But there comes a time that if they want to stay in a ditch, you've got to walk off and leave them in a the ditch. Why? Because you are misusing your energy, your time, your effort, your God-given resources if somebody wants to stay in the ditch. Because there are other places where you can be using everything I just mentioned in a productive way that is moving people up out of ditches. All right. So the kingdom has some to do with our emotions, but it has little to do with our emotions. It has a whole lot to do with long obedience in the same direction, which is really, really methodical and practical. We've got, you know, <clears throat> the good Samaritan got down in the ditch with the guy who'd been robbed and beaten. But at some point, he, what does the scripture tell us he did? 
he got him up out of the ditch and took him down the road. Why? Because there was something better for him down the road. God had a better thing down the road. And for people who say, I'd rather stay here. I don't want to follow you down the road. I don't want what's down the road. I think there's a lesson in the New Testament also that says maybe at times you ought to just dust off, dust, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next productive project. Number seven, we must always be fluid and mobile. <coughs> I'd like to stay here a long time, but I won't. So you get towards the end of the chapter, chapter 8 in Nehemiah, and like I said when I was reading it, sort of this weird thing comes up about them building booths. And... At first read or first glance, you think, well, why in the world? They now have spent this time, spent this money, done the work to get the walls rebuilt, to get the gates hung back up, to get their homes in order. These people now have houses to live in inside the city walls. These people now have some security around them. They have comfortable, decent places to live for the most part. And the ones who are better off are taking care of the ones who are not so well off. Why on earth would they be challenged now to go out and gather up sticks to build sheds on top of their roofs or in the yard for them to stay in for a week? It's like kids who have an awesome bedroom, who have a nice set of bunk beds, who want to pitch a tent in the living room and sleep on the floor. And when, when my kids tried to get me to camp out with them, I'm like, you crazy. No. And my grandchildren have not yet tried that, but when they try it, it'll be like, uh-uh, I love you. I'm not sleeping on the floor. I got a bed in there. Why would you do it? The reason they do it is it's an act of remembrance and an act of worship for the time that they were in the wilderness, for the time when the gates were burned down and the walls were destroyed. It's for all those times that they had to find shelter that was primitive, that was temporary, that was fluid, that was mobile, that you could pick up and take to the next spot because they were on a journey. It's God saying, hey, don't forget where I brought you from and the journey that it was required to get you to where you are now. Tabernacles, tents, mobile structures. Even though you got a house, hey, this will bring back to your memory where you've been, what I brought you through, and it will compel you to worship and to focus more on my word. I love that concept. And some of y'all will remember back when I spoke for three or four weeks about Stephen being stoned and how he preached a message to the people who were about to stone him, and it was a message they already knew. Everything they said to him, he said to them, they already knew it. <clears throat> he was just reminding them of where they'd been, where God had brought them from, and he walked through it detail by detail, step by step, all the way through the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, he tells them. And when it gets to the end of his speech, 
he says something powerful to them that Peterson translates in the Message Bible in a way that I love. He's talking about how they, how, how David had this vision to build a house for God, a permanent structure where they could gather, where they could worship, where they could house their artifacts and their important elements of worship that had been built or God had given them through the years. And it's almost like you can feel this tone of sarcasm in Stephen's voice when he's talking and telling them this. If David had this brilliant idea to build God a house, as if God needs any man to build a house for him. God wants a house. I think he's cap fully capable of building a house for himself. You know that building a permanent house for God was not God's idea, right? Just like having a king over Israel was not God's idea. Because God doesn't seem to align with these kinds of permanent organizational structures because he knows there's going to be a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of junk built on top of it and added to it. It's going to complicate the process. It's going to pollute the holy water. He can see it coming and we don't seem to be able to. And so Stephen says David had this idea to build a house for God, but he didn't get it done. But his son Solomon actually accomplished it and built this big, beautiful temple for God. And then Stephen says, and the whole time all God wanted was for you to be a tent shrine of true worship. Let that sink in. A tent shrine. Uh, a moving, mobile person in the kingdom that is going wherever the Spirit is going and doesn't feel like they got to come into a certain room at a certain address to connect with the Spirit of God. So, he says, build booths. Be fluid. Be ready and prepared to move. Be ready to go. If the service opportunity is not inside these four walls, then we will go to where the service opportunity is. If we don't feel like having church inside the church, let's go have church somewhere else. And we ought to be having church all week long wherever we are. Tent shrine, true worship. So I'm going to finish up by saying this. We've been blessed with a beautiful facility right here. Kind of blows my mind still that we have this. This phenomenal building, the other building, the kitchens, the gym, the classroom space, all of it. It's all in really good shape, right? This, I think this, uh, this place is 40 years old. This building is 40 years old this year, I think, because it was built in 83. <coughs> we have this to do whatever we want to do with it. Prime location We're in town. On top of that, we've been blessed with a phenomenal 31-acre farm up the road. 
with a, with a beautiful event barn, horse barn, house, pool, pristine yards, landscape, and fencing that we have the opportunity to do stuff at. And you know what? I'm grateful for both of them. Was excited when both happened. But I'd be the same kingdom son if we were meeting in my yard every Sunday because we didn't have anywhere else to go. Or your yard if I didn't have a yard. Or out on the sidewalk if none of us had a yard. This is the way it's supposed to be, y'all. It's about a mentality. It's about an attitude. So you can have the biggest, most beautiful, most well-outfitted building in the, in the state of Georgia. And you'd have the same church if you were meeting under a tent as if you do as you do when you have that beautiful building because it's about what's in here it's not about this right it's a, the church is a moving living organism that's supposed to be infiltrating the dark spaces in the earth not gathering in brick and mortar structures on Sunday mornings and that's about the extent of it but so many people have their spirituality their Christianity tied up in the church they go to on Sundays <coughs> and how you know awesome it is and again it's appropriate to be grateful there's nothing wrong with having it I consider it to be a blessing I'll tell you what I consider both of these places that we have to be I consider them to be a picture of my motto for life blessing follows obedience blessing follows obedience you you continue your long obedience in the same direction year after year after year and then the blessings start to show up but if your mentality changes when the blessings show up you're not going to fulfill your kingdom purpose the mentality has to stay the same because God stays the same the word stays the same the revelation stays the same you know what the rules that God gave to Moses are the still rules still the rules that apply to us today you can have all these thousands and tens of thousands of laws put on the books all over the place and you read any one of those laws and you can fit them into one of the categories in the Ten Commandments you really only need the ten And you can fit them into the words of Jesus when he gave those instructions in his teachings. So, we must always be fluent and mobile no matter what kind of physical blessings we may experience. We have to have that attitude and that mentality. And then the last lesson, number eight, is both celebrations and solemn assemblies are appropriate. Um, believe it or not, I get challenged sometimes for not doing this or that, or for doing this or that. 
<laughs> and I'm, I'm a person who uh, knows that I've got room for improvement. And sometimes when I get challenged, I think about it, and I'm like, yeah, I need, you know, need to make an adjustment there, I need whatever. Uh, but sometimes it comes from this attitude of it needs to either be almost all celebration or it needs to be almost all solemn assembly. In other words, and I'm not talking about those two things specifically. I'm giving you an illustration. In other words, if a person has in their head that they think church ought to be done a certain way and they're stuck in that and they think that's the only way it can be done, then they've lost their fluidity. They've lost their flexibility. They've, they've lost their willingness to allow God to manipulate and move and work and do. And they've probably lost some level of confidence that there are others who can follow the leading of the Spirit and, and believe they know what to do and what's best for the people in thinking that their way is the only right way. Okay? So... Frankly, I've torn all that down in my life. I've torn it down. I can accept criticism. I can accept counsel. I can accept advice. I've got room for important. Uh, I've got room for improvement. But look, uh, I, am, I, I did away with the, quote, order of service a long time ago, and you will never, ever see an order of service laying up here. Right. I did away with format a long time ago. I found my freedom. I'll never go back to it again. Okay, there are some traditions that are good, but in, in terms of operating based on tradition, that ain't going to happen. I believe in hearing and obeying, and that's what we do. And sometimes that looks like celebration, and sometimes that looks like solemn assembly. And sometimes, sometimes it looks like more of this particular thing that we do as a group and less of that, and sometimes it'll look like more of that and less of this. And all of it's appropriate, right? So we have no musicians and no singers this morning. Could have just sent out a message and said, hey, we can't do church without musicians and singers. Y'all stay home today. No, I don't, you know, if we don't, and you know this already because we did it for a long time, we don't have musician singer here, we just go on without it, okay? There, there, are, there, there are a couple of absolutes that we will never do without. We won't do without prayer and we, don't, we won't do without the word, but we can do without music. And if you're seriously into prayer and into the word, your own worship experience is going to be real. It's going to be beneficial. So both celebrations and solemn assemblies are important. That's why at the end of the chapter, when Ezra reads from the book, <clears throat> they celebrated the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly in accordance with the decree. Why? Because both are important. Both are beneficial. Both are blessed by God. When we come to Him in a sense of exuberance and celebration, He receives it. When we come 
to him in a sense of solemnity and quiet worship, he receives that too. He is a God who appreciates our obedience more than any act, any format, any formula, any recipe, any order that we can create. He just wants to see obedience. I was uh, listening to a, a sermon on YouTube the other day. Guy was actually preaching about the judgment seat of Christ. And he was talking about what Christians will be judged on in the end. And if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, obviously you're saved and you're going to be um, rewarded. But I hope you're aware that not everybody's going to be rewarded at the same level. Not every believer will be rewarded at the same level. There are different levels of reward. Well, what are those levels based off of? If we're all saved, what are those levels based off of? Simply put, they will be based on your level of obedience. That's what God, listen, if that's what he's going to judge us on, don't you think that's what we should be paying the most attention to? as we live out our lives here on earth. So, take these lessons in verse 12. He, he says this funny little phrase. He says, now they got it. It's like, finally, they got it. And I want us to be in a spot where at least part of this, we can leave here and say, yeah, I got it. I got this. It's making a difference in me. This is going to change some things for me. I'm going to really dig in deeper on this this week for myself. And we're going to continue to get it because that's long obedience in the same direction. Let's pray. Father, these are your people, not mine. These are your precious sons and daughters. And we, we are privileged to come here together this morning so that you can speak to us, so that you can give us counsel by your Spirit, <clears throat> so that that Word, that living, active, breathing Word, can settle and can make changes inside of us and thank you for the parts of it that we got this morning that that really are going to do that in us and continue to create transformation one little bit at a time in our hearts so we commit ourselves to take it with us and to allow it to work out uh, whatever it is you have planned for us through the coming days and I pray over this group this morning because some in the room may be struggling with health issues, with issues of um, fear, anxiety, depression, addiction, or some may be struggling financially and, not, and wondering how they're going to get through it. And some may have problems in relationships or dealing with grief. And I just pray your Holy Spirit would do what he does and that nobody else can do this morning in every situation. She would calm the storms that are going on in minds and hearts, that you would bring your peace, that you would empower us to know and to be able to do the next thing that's in front of us that will bring another level of victory and another, another level of freedom and understanding, and that you would make provision for those needs, that you would bring healing to sick bodies and financial provision to those who are struggling, and that you would heal relationships and that you would work miracles in our lives. We really believe you're a God who still works miracles.
And we pray that you would protect us from the schemes of the enemy, that you would not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks again for being here. You can drop your tithes and offerings at the back if you have them. Y'all have a great week.